sustainability is not hard. It's actually the most natural way of doing things. It's living in respect uh, and also in alignment, in equilibrium with the rest of the pieces of the ecosystem. Hello, I'm your host, James, and welcome to All About Energy, a podcast brought to you in association with the Centre for Energy Ethics at the University of St. Andrews. Every episode, we get together with an expert from the Centre for Energy Ethics and discuss news pieces from the world of climate, sustainability or energy before going into an interview with a special guest. It is my pleasure to introduce once again my co-host for this episode, PhD student in social anthropology with her work on energy elites and how individual leaders within the energy industry shape our collective energy futures, Anna Rauter. Hi Anna, welcome back. Hi James, thank you. It's, it's really great to be back. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. Now we're going to get straight into the news this week. Anna, do you have something for us? I do. Um, actually for this podcast, I'd like to um, contribute with a discussion of several news pieces that are all relating to the same topic, which is the current state of the oil market. Several news outlets have in the past few weeks and months published on a decline in oil investments. They note that companies are pulling out of planned investments despite rising oil prices. So this is really unique because these companies are pulling out of their assets at a time where oil prices are actually increasing. Reuters has just recently said that a $100 price per barrel is likely to be on the horizon. In the past, soaring oil prices have usually led to increased investment. So you know, what's happening here? Most of the articles that I'm referencing here conclude that the current trend, the trend of oil companies drawing out of investments and reducing investments during this oil price boom are indeed part of a larger shift that's taking place in the global oil market. So they're saying that it's not part of the usual boom and bust that's associated with the oil industry and its history. The first news piece I'd like to briefly quote is from Bloomberg, and it's entitled, This Time is Different. And and the quote is, For the first time in decades, oil companies aren't rushing to increase production to chase rising oil prices as Brent crude approaches $70. So this article comes from May, so this isn't quite up to date, the price. The reason for this, for this sort of phenomena, as the Bloomberg article suggests, is twofold. On the one hand, the industry is constrained by investors demanding that companies spend less on drilling and instead return more money to shareholders. And on the other hand, the article notes that climate activists have an effect on companies as they push against fossil fuels. When I interviewed leaders and experts of Norwegian oil companies, they too noticed increasing pressure from those shareholders wanting the the kind of quick buck. This, the leader said, was an increasing trend as doubts about the future of oil and gas in the industry grew bigger. Which actually brings me to the next news piece by Upstream, which is on Equinor's decision to pull out of its Mexican deepwater assets. Equinor is a major oil and gas player based in Norway, and it's a partly state-owned company. And it's also amongst those oil corporations that are increasingly investing in renewables aiming to be recognized as a broad energy company rather than a fossil fuel company. So the decision to withdraw from those assets in Mexico is based on Equinor's strategy to focus on remaining upstream investments with rapid and robust returns, as the article says. It seems like these oil companies or energy companies that have some investment in fossil fuels are looking to get all they can out of current assets but aren't investing in future assets yeah that's that's exactly right and so it seems really that bloomberg's title you know that things are different is is quite on point it seems that the leaders of oil companies while perhaps they don't really outwardly communicate this directly but they seem to brace for a future without oil Um, So currently there's a focus on extracting what is possible with with high revenue to sort of get the most out of it, if you will. When I was speaking with oil leaders in Norway, they were most worried about the future demand of oil. Emphasis on demand. Because with increasingly vocal publics speaking out against the climate risk of producing and consuming fossil fuels, and also renewables steadily becoming an increasingly viable option for energy production, 
the future of oil is looking more uncertain than ever. And this brings me to the last article published on June 22nd by Reuters, which quotes the CEO of ExxonMobil, Darren Wood, saying that, and I quote, coming out of the pandemic and the lack of the investment in our industry, I think it's going to exacerbate the supply and demand tightness as the economies pick back up again. So again, there is mention of declining investments in the oil and gas sector, something that I also heard when I was in Norway. Actually, as I spoke to some of the key players, including investors in Norway, they noted that there is a split in the investment community. So on the one hand, those mentioned earlier who are in for the quick returns and the big money. And then on the other hand, the oil and gas industry seemed to lose investors as they adopted increasingly stringent investment guidelines relating to the environment and, and social and government guidelines. So it's really quite interesting to see the effect of the investment community on the industry and on oil, on the oil market in general. I, I, I was just thinking in my head that this is actually quite timely for us at the center since we've just launched the uh, Energy and Climate Finance Network, which is actually looking into how fi the finance of the energy sector impacts energy decisions uh, around the world. So, I mean, it's quite fortuitous that you've uh, picked something or a series of articles which seem to highlight this. And I think it's also something that we've covered the Royal We that uh, Dr. Meta High and Dr. Sean Field have covered in their, their blog post series on the price of oil hmm. and the future of oil over on the energy blog. I mean, it's not, it's absolutely not my field and not my, my place to, to comment, but I, I'm getting very, uh, Strong hints that there is something happening here that is out of the ordinary. Yeah, the the future of oil, I mean, might be in doubt. Hmm. Yeah. It's just to add one more thing. I think the quote that I read out from the CEO of ExxonMobil is also interesting because it notes that, of course, a decline in investments, which, as we know from the Bloomberg piece, results in less drilling and thus less production and, of course, then ultimately less supply. So, you know, going back to my economics classes when I did my undergrad, of course, demand and supply interrelate. So meaning that a change in demand patterns where, you know, whether that's from consumers or investors will, of course, affect supply, which again reinforces the patterns that these news stories suggest of a slow but sure decline of oil and gas. And also importantly, it suggests that the consumers that the demand side, which we are all part of, has an important role to play in the kind of futures that are shaped with regards to energy. It's really interesting that a lot of these articles are pointing to the investment side, driving the practices of these companies, rather than pointing at the demand side. Because that's the reason that the price is going up, right, is because the demand is not necessarily falling at the same rate that the investment is falling. Or that seems to be what's implied here. So it might be that as a result of the price of oil increasing, green projects are becoming increasingly more viable as a direct result of that. I mean, we talked about it when we interviewed uh, Professor John Irvine, is that for a long time, oil has not been priced correctly in terms of its impact on the climate. And maybe that the change in investment patterns is starting to help reflect that impact and reflect the proper uh, price of carbon uh, emissions in particular, which um, kind of fossil fuels uh, represent. Yeah. So I, I, I think it's really interesting that the driving is coming from that side rather than the advancement of new technology, but that this increase in price may drive further change in terms of the, um, the demand side of things. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point. And I think it's also important to note that there's so many things that interrelate in the, in the making of these kinds of trends. In the past, actually, whenever renewable technology has been pushed and, and innovation has been driven, it has usually coincided with an increase in prices of oil. And so I think what you're saying is, is a really acute observation there's an interrelation between oil and between gas and between fossil fuels and renewables. So they're not 
polar opposites that we can look at distinct from each other, but we have to consider them together and their effect on the future of energy. So it's it's really complex, these, these markets and how they develop, but it's also really interesting to see that themes are starting to emerge and patterns are starting to emerge that look like the future will indeed be maybe less oil and gas driven and maybe more renewable and low carbon energy focused, which of course I'm saying maybe here, but I'm hoping that that will be the case. From this hopeful point, do you have any hopeful news that you are talking about? For this? Uh, hopeful is an interesting word. My news piece this week is about climate science. So it comes courtesy of a guest post over on Carbon Brief by a professor of climate science at Simon Fraser University in Canada. It's Professor Kirsten Zickfeld. And in this post titled, Why Carbon Dioxide Removal is Not Equal and Opposite to Reducing Emissions, which is based on a study presented in the journal Nature Climate Change, Professor Zickfeld evaluates the idea that net zero in terms of emissions should achieve a balance and avoid further climate change. So on the face of it, it would seem to be a no-brainer. Of course, removing as much carbon from the atmosphere as is emitted would be the same as not emitting anything at all, right? I'm sensing a but. Well, the Earth's climate is a complex system. And when this net zero hypothesis was tested on a model with even just an intermediate level of complexity, this does not seem to stand up. Using this intermediate model, Professor Zickfeld and colleagues found what they describe as an asymmetrical relationship between emissions and the removal of emissions. According to their model, both carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and surface temperature are affected more by the emission of carbon dioxide than they are by the removal of it, despite those numbers being balanced. Hmm. Now, what this means is that the equal in, equal out idea that net zero assumes is not actually the case. And the study also found that the asymmetry actually increases as the emissions and removals increase. So the larger those numbers, the less equal they are. Now, the authors are quick to point out that the numbers used in the climate model are significantly scaled up. In order for there to be noticeable changes, they tested between 10 and 50 times the average global carbon emissions. Nevertheless, the study does still seem to indicate that the assumption that a net zero world should amount to achieving a climate equilibrium is in fact false. So as carbon emissions are pumped up into the atmosphere, they have a bigger impact as when you remove them from the atmosphere? Yeah. So in their model, they tested 100 gigatons of carbon released into the atmosphere. By doing that, there's actually a 3% greater effect that you get from putting those emissions in than you get from taking them out. And the effect being on, on climate change? The effect that they've observed is both on the carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere and surface temperature. So both of those, although they're slightly different, temperatures a little bit scaled down in terms of the asymmetry, but carbon dioxide levels in the atmosphere increase more than expected at a net zero scenario when you'd expect no increase at all. And surface temperatures also increase more than expected in a net zero scenario. <laughs> okay. So... This has wide-ranging implications, not only in real-world climate science, but also in politics and policy. At the time that we're recording this, 59 countries across the world have net zero targets in place, with many more states, cities, companies, and organizations following suit. And while net zero remains a good target, the study would seem to suggest that how these net zero goals are achieved is more important than previously thought that reducing emissions has a greater climatic impact than increasing carbon dioxide removal by the same amount. And therefore, reducing our reliance on carbon-emitting energy sources, including those that involve the removal of CO2 from the atmosphere, such as biofuels, used in transport, heating, and the production of electricity, is going to have a greater impact on the climate than simply offsetting those emissions. The study can also inform changes that we might want to make as individuals too. It suggests that we should prioritize reducing our individual emissions and those associated with our consumption rather than relying on offsetting programs. So take the train rather than going on a plane and buying those offsetting credits. 
Yeah, this is interesting, but I'm I'm wondering how this affects the industry that is banking on making projects of of carbon capture and storage and and other carbon um, reducing projects. When I was uh, doing research in Norway, I spoke to one person who was involved in a carbon capture and storage program, and he said, "For us, carbon is money." Um, so that that to me was really interesting at the time. I sort of couldn't believe that something that's considered a big environmental problem can be conceptualized in this sort of economic value terms. So saying that carbon is money was sort of outrageous. But then I thought about it and I thought, well, okay, maybe that, you know, that is the way that the market deals with these negative externalities. You make them valuable and then you can deal with them and it can be sort of traded like a commodity. So to him, um, capturing carbon was a great economic opportunity. But then based on the article that you've just presented, that it's probably less optimistic on these on these kinds of means. And, and as such, this encourages a whole new branch of industry that's developing. So I'm not sure how um, the leaders and experts in Norway that are um, working on these uh, carbon capture and storage programs, how they would receive this. Well, there are two two different conversations, right? So, in, to answer your first point about carbon capture, what the study doesn't suggest is that that's not important, right? So, carbon capture is still very important if we want to follow the kinds of models that our guest in episode four, uh, Tim Hewlett, put forward. Is that carbon capture is not only important; it's necessary if we want to avoid global he- temperature rises that far exceed two degrees celsius if we want to follow those models then it's necessary absolutely it's still going to have an important place it still has to have an important place regardless of what model we follow but what it suggests instead is that finding ways to reduce emissions finding ways to be more uh, effective at and efficient when we do use these carbon uh, carbon emitting fuels is more important than finding ways to simply offset the emissions. Hmm. Um, Something that's always bothered me about this net zero and offsetting um, sort of rhetoric, because planting trees that take 20 years to grow to a place where, you know, they're mature, depending on the type of tree, but, you know, a tree doesn't grow overnight. So it takes time to mature. It takes time to come to its full capacity of extracting CO2 and converting it into oxygen. If you if you drive your car today and you emit that CO2 and then you say, OK, I'm going to plant a tree and offset it, that doesn't offset it right away. You need to wait until the tree has this capacity to take on the CO2. That's something that has always bothered me with these sort of initiatives, that it doesn't account for the time lag that is there with um, with uh, these natural ways, you know, so trees and plants and things like that. So does the article mention that? <laughs> No, no, it doesn't. And that's an additional point, right? That, that's just an additional notch for the let's reduce emissions part of this conversation is that, yeah, you're absolutely right. It, it is not an instantaneous thing. It doesn't take the carbon out that you've emitted straight away. We have the capacity to emit carbon at such a fast rate that there's no instant way yet of removing that. And as the study shows, even if there were, that one-to-one relationship that has has been assumed with all those net zero plans is not necessarily enough to maintain climate stability. Hmm. James, the article you've presented here links quite nicely to our next segment because to me, my takeaway from it is that there is a real importance in being proactive rather than reactive when it comes to climate change. And uh, on that note, I think you know, sustainability initiatives are really important. And this is what our guest speaker today will speak about. Lubomila Jordanova is here today to speak to us about encouraging sustainability in businesses and in the industry at large. It is our pleasure to welcome our guest this episode, Lubomila Jordanova. Lubomila has a background in investment banking, venture capital, and fintech in Asia and Europe that left that world to found Plan A Earth, of which she is currently the CEO. 
Plan A Earth is a Berlin-based startup developing an end-to-end platform that enables companies to measure, monitor, and reduce their environmental footprint and improve their ESG, that is, environmental, social, and governance performance. Luba Miller is also the co-founder of the Green Tech Alliance, a community of over 700 startups which are connected to over 350 advisors from venture capital, media and business, who help them monthly with advice and feedback. She was recently announced as the Marshall Fund Fellow for 2021 and one of 100 top women in Germany 2020. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast and giving us your time, Luba Miller. Uh, hi, uh, it's really a great pleasure to meet you. Um, perhaps we can start off by you telling us a bit more about you and your career and perhaps a bit about your future visions. Um, my name is Luba Miller, as mentioned, and uh, what I do is uh, address climate change by enabling corporates uh, to make better decisions on a daily basis. We do this through a software that is uh, allowing uh, different corporates from different industries to monitor their emissions and learn how to reduce them over time. In terms of future visions, I think I have quite a few. Uh, I definitely am working towards a more sustainable society economy, which is driven by also more um, um, kind of KPI-driven uh, uh, decision-making that also embeds the environmental KPIs that are at the moment are discounted for, but maybe I let in the conversation uh, for us to unfold other future visions that uh, I might have. Just now you mentioned two things that I think would be interesting for our listeners to know a bit more about, which is what you define as sustainability, what is sustainability to you and in the corporate world. And then the second thing you mentioned, and maybe we can start with that, is KPIs. And maybe you can tell us the importance of KPIs and what KPIs are. Historically, what has driven us as a society, uh, as an economy, has been uh, the vision of growth and that has always been defined by the currency of money. And that is, to some extent, a very efficient approach to looking into the way we do things up until the point when things don't get broken. And today, what we see, um, thanks to the increased speed and frequency of events related to climate change unfolding, is that we've been missing historically one KPI, and that's the environmental one. Uh, that is not necessarily the CO2 emissions, that's also our um, kind of approach to water, our approach to uh, biodiversity. Um, and when you put all these things together, you see that we've been missing quite a huge part of the decision-making uh, bill, um, which is why uh, climate change is unfortunately unfolding so fast. So when we speak about KPIs, what we look into, uh, what we're trying to embed also in the decision-making of companies is these environmental KPIs that have been historically missing. What is the environmental cost of you producing? What is the environmental cost of you traveling uh, around the world for business? What is the environmental cost of uh, you maybe uh, focusing more on optimization of production, but not necessarily on all the building blocks of this, um, this production that are related to the environment? These are some of the things we are um, essentially enabling our clients to learn about. And that, that is through the algorithm that you have made? This is through the software that we have, but we also have other products. Our software is the main element of our uh, work with companies. Uh, this is a tool that essentially is enabling them to automate um, the data collection related to carbon accounting and then the visualization. Um, and based on the worst performing indicators, the product also gives them recommendations for uh, how they can reduce their emissions as well. Is this just what the company produces or what service they put out? Or is it also for, let's say, their office culture, things like recycling or the energy they use to heat the buildings where the uh, employees work? So you can't depict one from the other because if you are uh, developing sustainability strategy in your company, that means that you are also uh, looking into how the employees are related to the topic also how your production is influenced by that. So all of these different elements are part of the, the calculation and actually they're all even embedded into the framework of the GHG protocol which prescribes on how you calculate emissions. So uh, it accounts for both. And in the work that you've done so far with uh, Plan A Earth, what's the most common thing that you find that businesses aren't doing that they ought to be doing? 
I think there's quite a lot of things that people are still learning to do with regards to the topic of sustainability. So I wouldn't pick necessarily only one and I also would fail to really describe the complexity of the issue that we're addressing if I uh, kind of sum it up in one. I think common, um, commonly forgotten uh, things to do are related to how important it is to involve your stakeholders. Uh, many companies think that they can do their sustainability agenda just by focusing on their internal affairs. But uh, the truth is, is that if you really want to be effectively reducing your emissions, you cannot do it without the third parties involved in your production, in your logistics, or simply in your uh, operations of the business, or so any of the purchase goods and services that you might have. Um, another common um, kind of mistake is related to uh, the fact that people don't start measuring from the beginning and they start doing a lot of things that uh, leave them with maybe a sensation that they're doing a good job. But when you put the numbers together and you really uh, make it visible uh, through uh, different calculations, carbon accounting calculations, you end up seeing that uh, it really is not uh, the most effective action. So these are maybe two common denominators that uh, um, are overarching across many uh, use cases in business. Uh, maybe, maybe this is difficult for you to tell, but since I'm an anthropologist and I, I'm very much interested in, in the people side of things, because you said it's a holistic sort of approach, you need to change the internal culture as well as with the external. So I'm wondering if um, those employees that within those companies, if you think that there's also a mindset change or a change in perceptions that are taking place? In terms of how does a tool like that in, enable uh, companies to change their mindset, uh, it is part of the process and it's up to the company itself on why they're doing sustainability, but ultimately it ends up changing mindset. So. What we've seen with many companies is that um, they might decide to start their journey because they feel pressured by regulations or uh, by their employees or by customers. Um, we also have seen the case where there's an intrinsic drive that is coming from um, different actors internally and it's more um, the mindset first rather than this um, external pressure. In any case, whatever the reason for them to be doing this, what well, we've seen that after six or seven months of engagement with the topic, they end up developing uh, an understanding of why this is a long-term challenge that they need to address and why it really matters for them to be deeply embedded into the topic if they really want to start seeing effects. Other than that, it just becomes uh, part of the reporting ritual that every single year happens for um, any company. That's amazing. I'm interested, Lerumela, in how you um, got started in this and, and, and how, what motivated you, sort of what's your personal motivation to do this? So the, in 2016, I was, uh, after a few stunts in the financial industry, I was in fintech, in investment banking, in VC. Um, I had uh, this serendipitous, I guess, trip to Morocco where instead of surfing, I ended up cleaning beaches and uh, this changed my mind about what kind of I should be spending my free time on to start with. Uh, I first came back to London and I was quite um, sh shaken by the experience and I really wanted to understand what is the correlation between um, pollution, um, climate change, humans and um, it turned out that there was a lot of information out there, there was a lot of scientific knowledge, uh, it was just that it was not applied to the business sphere. So it was not necessarily at the prime of uh, what media was talking about. Um, and in 2016, you have to remind yourself, it was not even that Fridays for Future uh, existed. It was not even that this topic was showing up on weekly basis, let alone on daily basis as it does today um, on our agenda. So I ended up learning quite a lot and was quite surprised to see that there was so much knowledge out there, but there was very little action. Um, and as a result of that, I felt confident to conduct, first of all, one um, experiment. The first thing that I did was a comparative database, which was looking on one hand at the biggest environmental issues, and then on the other hand, it was looking at the funding that was going into addressing these issues. Um, and then the second thing that I did was I interviewed 300 people to see what their opinion on climate change was. 
because those were, those were the times when there were still opinions on climate change. Shortly after, I was uh, shocked enough by the results to decide to quit my job and essentially focus fully on uh, Plan A. It was driven mainly by the fact that um, there was clearly a lot that could be done, but it was very little that was being done, uh, especially from the business uh, community. Do you think that's changed now in 2021? Do you think it's a different atmosphere? Uh, there's definitely a lot more talk about it, that is for sure. Um, there's definitely a lot more um, investment. If you look at the EU and the UK, um, uh, also the, with the political agenda, there's movement. Are we achieving the results? I would say no, because we're still um, on track this year after having a small drop of 7% last year in emissions. Uh, to essentially be rising over the uh, CO2 emissions that we had the year before last year. So there's definitely a lot more momentum in terms of um, green technology, uh, in terms of political uh, movement, but the results are not there. So I would say um, it feels a bit more like we're still in the preparatory phase of uh, the bigger act uh, rather than where we are today. So the slogan of, of your company, Plan A, is climate change is everyone's business. Uh, we had an interview last uh, episode with a climate activist who was very keen to see a large-scale systematic change in how we deal with, in particular, issues of climate and issues of international interest. To what extent, because you've been talking about these solutions to sustainability in very much in corporate language in an industry sense, and to what extent... Do we have the tools now to fix climate change within industry? And to what extent do you think that we need to break away from current models uh, to be successful? In terms of the tooling, I would say we have all the right tools um, and they just need to be scaled or implemented. Uh, we, we do not necessarily need a lot of innovation in order to drastically reduce emissions because by... Um, Eliminating waste by uh, increasing efficiency in energy consumption, uh, by also uh, allowing for policies to become more environmentally friendly in companies, we're already going to be able to address probably between 40 and 50 percent of emissions uh, in terms of the issues that we have now, in terms of the uh, emission exposure that we have now. Um, for the rest, there's definitely large-scale innovation that would need to be implemented. Um, and these are uh, technologies, again, that exist um, but sometimes they're just not uh, in the prime enough uh, to be perceived as something mainstream that you can pick up and then introduce in your company. Um, in terms of the tools like ours, for example, that allow for uh, measurement, we're definitely in the beginning of uh, what we call a revolution, essentially, because basically carbon accounting is going to become more important than financial accounting as, unfortunately, climate change uh, expands its negative impact. So uh, with this in mind, uh, going through a, to a level of granularity where data really starts speaking at lengths of what actions you can take is what we're aiming to achieve. Are we there yet? No. Uh, as an industry, we definitely have a lot of work to do, and um, that is related to also data availability. There's so many data gaps that we're filling up with uh, predicted values uh, as a company and machine learning helps there, but there's still quite a lot that we um, need to be, uh, of course, further expanding on. Um, and it's kind of a chicken-egg problem because it's not necessarily the immaturity of our technology, rather more the fact that uh, data in a corporate uh, environment is sitting in so many different pockets and sometimes it's not even available. So, you know, you need to find the balance between these two sides. In terms of the change that we need to see, it is definitely a systemic change because we're talking about a mindset shift towards a more environmentally friendly approach to existence. There's so much work to be done specifically on that. I'm definitely a lot more confident on the innovation side, on the tooling side, than on this mindset shift because it is part of our uh, human being mindset that we tend to always remember the positive things and forget the bad things. So... COVID is just a stunt that it's fading away in multiple geographies. Like in Germany, it feels like 
nothing ever happened because now we're back to normal. There's no limits on how many people you meet, where do you go. Clubs are closed, but, you know, you're, everyone is happy that uh, everything else is on. So, uh, and it doesn't feel like anything happened before. There's, the parks are packed with trash and things like that. So it's, this mindfulness has not yet unfolded. And I think for this to happen, it really would require a lot of political engagement as well as business engagement, but also societal expectation that sets the ground for all of these different actors to take action. It's kind of this reverse domino effect where it's more like a pendulum rather than a domino because it has to be everyone has to be pushing each other. We're we're still recovering from one year of uh, being uh, at home and probably quite secluded and not necessarily in the usual setup. So there's still some work to do on the mindset side. I like that metaphor of a pendulum. I think that that's quite mm-hmm. smart. Um, I, I'm wondering if I if you can tell us a little bit more. You mentioned some things, but what do you think exactly is required? or such a mindset shift? How does this come about? I always explain sustainability as the minimalist option. So being a person or a company that is sustainable is actually being more efficient with resources and being more mindful about how the things that you have and the things that you don't uh, without the necessity of trying to get more in terms of physical uh, acquisitions. And... With this in mind, when it comes to this implementation of this mindset shift, it really requires for us to start understanding that sustainability is not hard. It's actually the most natural way of doing things. It's living in respect uh, and also in alignment, in equilibrium with the rest of the pieces of the ecosystem. At the moment, we're living uh, as if we own this ecosystem. And there, of course, the response is that we're being kicked out of it uh, because, of course, the rest of the inhabitants are not happy. And when I say rest of the inhabitants, it's not only about the animals, it's also like about any other living species that is out there. And um, this disbalance is leading then to increase frequency and speed of natural disasters. And then, obviously, this makes it unlivable for humans because we're not adaptable uh, as we probably have been many uh, many years ago when we were fighting for our existence uh, in a more um, kind of literal sense. So what is needed is really for us to start making, uh, to stop making the excuse that sustainability is expensive, difficult or complex um, and to start understanding what are the quickest fix we can get for us as individuals, as businesses and then also as governments because um, the grand plans for the next 20 to 50 years and all these net zero pledges and all these kinds of things, they're great that we need to have these, but the fixing starts today and that requires essentially all of these little steps to be taken uh, and all of these small shifts uh, in the way your company and your business and your com- government exists uh, to change. And that's where the problem actually starts because we're, starting, we're, we're still ignoring the opportunity today rather thinking of what is the billions that we need to deploy tomorrow when the problem is a lot bigger. I, I mean, I think that that was a, a wonderful answer and th- thank you for that. You mentioned their governments and uh, businesses, but earlier you, you said that everyone has to be part of it. And I just wondered how consumers in particular can identify and support businesses with good sustainability practices. I think the consumers have... Um one of the most crucial jobs in this whole mindset, but also just like literal shift towards producing more sustainably and doing things more sustainably as a business, as a government, because every single day we cast a vote of confidence in the companies we buy food from, the companies we buy clothes from, um, the companies we don't buy clothes from, and the political parties we vote for. So in that sense, it is uh, one of the most important jobs to have. And conveniently, it's actually one of the most available ones. Each one of us is, uh, on top of being a scholar, uh, uh, an entrepreneur, a politician, also a consumer. And by spending the extra time to figure out who's doing a good job uh, with being sustainable, um, you actually end up really saving probably a few hours of the kind of the the clock that is ticking, uh, that is actually running against uh, humanity at the moment. So if you allow yourself to really be mindful and maybe mm, instead of considering buying a new pair of jeans, you maybe go and find one secondhand or you swap or you do something like that, 
or if this is not an option because maybe for some people this is not something that they feel comfortable with. When you buy food, you look at something that has not traveled the whole planet to get to you. Uh, um, I remember this, and I'm not going to be naming and shaming, but I remember this uh, plastic packaged pineapple uh, that was in its sauce uh, that was produced in uh, Brazil or something and then uh, packaged in uh, like India and then uh, back in on the shelves in the UK, which, you know, that's we don't need that you know you can just have an apple and probably going to be equally as satisfied so um you know making the mindful choice according to the season according to the place where you live uh and according to what is kind of natural for the cycle of our planet and in your experience are there any useful tools out there for consumers to easily find that or is it just a case of doing your own research it is really interesting uh, company that popped up now in germany that i have a lot of respect for journalists who are volunteering their free time to essentially um, do the equivalent of an investigative journalism, but for consumers. And what they do is they pick brands on uh, weekly or monthly, I think it's weekly basis, and then they do like a very utter analysis of, is this a true innovation for the planet? Uh, is this greenwashing? Uh, is this really uh, a necessary problem to be addressed? Or could these people have spent time and money on something else? It's called letsflip.de, so it's in German, but you can use a translate to uh, and read the, the articles because they're speaking about internationally known products. Another one that I found quite useful, it's quite American-focused, but still it carries some relevance for uh, definitely the UK uh, and sometimes the German market is uh, how good. It's a database of products and you can find uh, different uh, kind of scores and different analysis on how sustainable a certain product is. And then there was another one and it's called like brand rates or rate brands or something like that. And that I found really useful because it's like, it gives you the sustainability score for brands that sell sports goods and um, things that usually are quite complex to produce. These are maybe a few examples that can navigate the choices of individuals. No, oh, that's great. That's great. Thank you. I've, I've been wondering, but I sort of missed the train on that question <laughs> when we were talking about the system earlier. But something I'm wondering about is how you feel about um, degrowth, those people who advocate degrowth. So that just, just to elaborate a bit on what I mean on that question for our listeners, degrowth is that idea of people who sort of criticize the capitalist system, the market economic system for promoting infinite growth in a finite world. So they say that the root problem of many of the, the issues that we have today, including climate change and including environmental degradation or, or, or threats to biodiversity are due to this spiral of infinite growth that isn't sustainable. And so they advocate an approach that sort of dismantles that system that advocates degrowth um, because they think that that is uh, the only way forward to, you know, to be more sustainable. I think your, what you said earlier suggests that you say that change is possible within that system. It doesn't require an overhaul of that system. And I'm wondering what oh. your thoughts are on, on this degrowth notion. Yeah. One of the uh, fathers of degrowth, I had the honor to meet him, Georgios Kalis. He's uh, based in Barcelona and the uh, University uh, Pompeo Faba. And um, we met uh, during the Sustainability Week that we organized there some years ago. So uh, it was really a wonderful occasion to also get to know him. And um, I must say it is quite of an interesting uh, concept because... Uh, it has uh, quite a lot of focus on re-establishing the equilibrium of our planet and that's something I utterly believe in. I think we really need to be working towards finding ourselves as part of the ecosystem, not as someone that owns the ecosystem. Um, where I sometimes maybe become a bit more cynical is when I think of really what... Um, our system is built upon and how we should approach the shift that we need to go through. I don't think degrowth in the way that is proposed as a very radical kind of, we need to focus on uh, n no growth, uh, but rather focus only on, uh, you know, um, only on social welfare and so on, is what many people would sign up for. I'm not necessarily speaking about myself, I'm speaking about... Uh, 
what does uh, what drives economic growth what drives actually the the success of you know the capitalistic model and so on so i think the truth lies somewhere in between where essentially uh, you we would need to have a more uh, i would say mindful approach to growth that also encompasses environmental social and governance um KPIs to allow to understand if this growth is really worth having and then to penalize anything that on one hand is uh growth if it doesn't account for good ESG performance or uh to discount anything that even if it's not at growth uh if it um if it doesn't also deliver economic value because i think we that's one of the problems with capitalism that there's a lot of you know the the, the free market model is uh great for experimentation but there's also a lot of useless experimentation there's a lot of things that are being built purely because you can uh, make money out of it but do we really need that like what was the what was this invention that I was like oh yeah I apologize to the person that uh, created this but like the uh, plastic holder for a banana it's like no we don't need that like it's it's not funny it's not like it's unnecessary like you know if you buy a banana eat the banana don't put it in a in a box that is specifically uh, created for that and that's the kind of things that in my opinion at least uh where mindfulness needs to be applied in order to understand if this is really needed to our society it's going to make things uh way like better like there's so many ways in which you can look at the, at the product and i think if it ticks off the boxes of ESG and we can talk about how ESG also needs to improve because that's still a very in its early stages uh, framework because there's a lot of discrepancy across models and so on but if we apply this mindset and then the economic one is also embedded in that and we find this balance that is people planet profit this is the holy uh, con- constellation in my opinion um it's easier said than done uh, at this stage of society but uh, that's at least from my perception uh, where we need to be headed towards yeah that's really interesting thank you i actually asked that question when i was interviewing um energy leaders in norway and i think a lot of them responded similarly to you they said that you know many actually mentioned something that you said at the beginning of this interview about efficiency so they said that one of the ways that growth could be achieved in a more sustainable way is to focus on making things more efficient rather than making them you know bigger and better and i think i'm sort of getting the sense that you're saying it but in in a very neat way in integrating all those aspects like um, society and like uh, sustainability and i'd love to know more about your esg but i think james we had a bunch of other questions that we wanted to ask you about so maybe we want to move on with those Ab- absolutely and i was just about to do the same thing anna um because we have talked a lot about plan a but i would be really interested to know about the green tech alliance uh that you've recently co-founded i was wondering if you could tell our listeners a bit more about this group how it works and your your goals in founding it the green tech alliance is a community of now more than 1000 businesses that do uh with their day-to-day uh different activities to address climate change we founded it in the beginning of summer 2020 uh essentially uh, when we were starting to feel the effects of covid as a way to address the concern that climate change might become a secondary topic uh due to the fact that covid was unfolding and thank god it did not happen that climate change got forgotten we have the uh the green deal we have uh the build back better and so on all these different frameworks uh across the world we have Biden we have also like a, a lot of different corporates that have now committed to net zero and so on our aim was to gather a community of green uh innovators and enable them to work together to have access to a lot of resources for free which they can tap into on daily basis these are advisors investors uh experts in technology science uh and um essentially the goal there is uh to enable them to grow uh without necessarily going through the usual hurdles of doing it by yourself. And on on that note, what hurdles do you want to help them uh, avoid that you had to overcome when you were starting up Plan A? Quite a lot. Uh starting a company on sustainability in 2017 is not necessarily a walk in the park. There's very little uh interest in the topic and there's very there was very little uh excitement 
people questioned if this is an NGO, if I was uh, leaving my finance background to focus on something that is a bit more like uh, volunteering work and so on. And um, that builds a barrier because you always need to over explain yourself instead of focusing on really what matters, which is engaging people with the topic. In terms of the uh, hurdles related to more practical elements of building a business, um, we couldn't access funding for quite a while because people, again, thought that this was not a viable business idea. We also had challenges in um, getting on board um, a lot of um, people for um, just, just to work with us. Working, the easiest thing was actually getting people to work for Plan A because that was uh, a topic they could engage with. And for those that were uh, awoke to the topic uh, at that point, they're really like deeply committed to uh, finding a way to address it. Um, so yeah, these are a few and actually the same issues still persist. Uh, and this is the stuff that we're offering in terms of help for the members of the Green Tech Alliance. Um, and they get this for free. And that's kind of, you know, it was definitely a dream come true to see this really happen because I know how challenging it was for me to be able to access all of these resources and how it's a lot more convenient to have it at the tip of your fingers to be able to ask people, to be asked friends, uh, and also to get to know uh, people that are really doing the same fighting on a daily basis and are not burdened by the fact that just people don't get it, which was kind of the case for us in 2016. You just mentioned that um, it was one of the easiest things was to recruit enthusiastic people who wanted to work at Plan A. And uh, going off of that, I'm wondering if you can speak a bit about women in sustainability. I've, we have seen that you are a mentor in the Fem Gems Club, which, as we understand, supports early stage um, founders. So I'm interested if you have uh, any advice for women who are interested in careers within technology or sustainability, and if you can tell us a bit more about Fem Gems as well. Of course, yeah. Women in technology is uh, still a problematic topic. I am uh, very lucky to work uh, amongst a lot of women in the Planet team uh, and that's something we have proactively worked on uh, but also have been very lucky to be able to attract this kind of talent. Uh, but it's not a common thing to see so many women in the tech team. Like for example, we have four women in the tech team and the tech team, like this is uh, one quarter of the tech team which is uh, quite of a okay, not necessarily good, I think we still need to work on it, but quite okay uh, statistic. Femgems is a community that is supporting women that uh, are just one step before deciding to make uh, uh, their dream to build a company come true and they maybe are limited by the fact that they don't have access to mentors or they don't necessarily feel like uh, they can um, securely progress with an idea because it's too much uncertainty and so on. So this is a community that helps them really make the leap and decide uh, uh, for the entrepreneurial adventure. It's really wonderful to see what Dora has been able to do because um, she really has connected a lot of thought leaders, a lot of women that are uh, standing behind, uh, you know, uh, this vision of a sustainable and more equal future to a lot of young uh, and all, not always necessarily young, uh, young-minded uh, individuals that are looking to build their own uh, venture. And the idea there is that you have um, support specific to a particular topic that you would like to cover. Maybe you want to chat about funding, maybe you want to chat about marketing, maybe you want to chat about something else. You always get it because there's enough mentors that can uh, provide this kind of knowledge. That's really amazing. Um, so that's that's a good place for for female listeners to go if they're at that stage of, of their careers. Do you have any other advice for for women who who want to do something in sustainability, who want to help <laughs> do something similar to you? What really encourages me is that I have definitely seen uh, a lot of women founders in this field. I don't know if this is because. Um, the, the topic uh, allows for uh, engagement uh, in, in a more uh, kind of, uh, in the, for women or not, but definitely uh, there's a lot of women founders. So my advice would be uh, test yourself. I think anyone that does something with an open heart and like with a true belief in the cause that they're addressing actually gets uh, a lot more opportunities and uh, 
I cannot put a statistic behind that, but I, I've seen it with my own life as well. If you are really deeply committed to something that is that truly matters to humanity and to society, uh, life organizes itself so things work out. Uh, and I must say it was really challenging for me, but I, I've always prevailed to the extent that First of all, I had a very good support group, so surround yourself with a support group that can allow you for for your belief to not be uh, broken. Um, and then the second thing is just um, don't question the validity of your commitment to the topic by uh, maybe seeing some hurdles, because there's going to be plenty. And this is not necessarily related to building a sustainability company, any company, but... Uh, if you really have your heart at the right place, um, your opportunities are going to be endless. That's really amazing. That's very inspirational. Uh, that's a very inspirational answer. And I think a, a good way to conclude the interview. We don't want to take too much of your time. but Absolutely. I was thinking the same thing. I mean, it's been amazing being able to have this opportunity to, to speak with you. I've really enjoyed it. We, I mean, we haven't had anyone on the podcast from from within the industry yet, so it's great to be able to have someone with with your kind of perspective on that kind of sphere of sustainability and climate change that is going to be necessary to uh, address the problems that we're currently facing. So, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you so much, and I wish you a wonderful week. Yeah, Anna, I kind of feel like I, I did our outro job there. I summed it up at the end of the interview, but I deserves restating that Libba Miller was a fantastic guest. What were your thoughts? Yeah, I thought it was a really great interview. Um, it was fantastic to have someone from the corporate world, but also someone who has had this personal journey of, um, of, you know, what in her words, a mindset shift towards being more sustainable. I think, James, you usually link the resources. Of course, I'll... Uh, Put all the links to the the various organizations and sites that Luba Miller mentioned in the interview. Uh, so the consumerism stuff, of course, Luba Miller's own businesses and the FemGem Club that she's involved with on the webpage associated with this podcast over on the Energy Ethics website. So you'll be able to find that along with all the news articles that we referenced at the beginning of the podcast over there. So Anna, what have we got going on at the center at the moment? Well, actually, calls for abstract for the Energy Ethics 2021 are out. So if you are thinking that you would like to attend the conference, please submit your abstracts by July 30th. I think it will be a very interesting event, and I think it's something not to be missed. No, absolutely. We had a lot of fun at the uh, EE2020 conference that you helped co-organize, Anna. So EE2021 is is looking to be uh, another exciting event uh, hosted over on, on VFair. So it's another virtual event. So if you are thinking about attending and you're outside the UK, then absolutely do sign up. Well, we are hosting everything virtually. So please do get involved with that. We also have, by the time this comes out, just finished the Africa at 2050 climate fiction competition. So if you want to check out all the results from that, we had over 500 climate fiction entries about uh, the topic of Africa at 2050 for that competition. So it was a hugely successful event. And I mean, some of the pieces that have come out of it are, are absolutely fantastic. So do go and check that out. Of course, we'll include the links to both in the podcast page associated with this specific podcast. So again, check that out if you're interested. Well, then what about you yourself, Anna? What's going on in your world at the moment that people can check out? I'm quite busy with my academic work at the moment, writing a research paper and also um, chapters for my thesis. But on the side, I've been quite active on Instagram, trying to bring some of the experiences and knowledge that I've gained through my research out and make it fun and interactive and um, really try to engage with the, that uh, social media platform and the community there to educate people about some of the work I do. So uh, if you're interested in learning about sustainability, energy leaders, energy and climate, maybe you'd like to check it out and, um, and be part of that conversation that uh, I'm trying to start over there. No, I, I don't have an Instagram myself, but I'm always impressed at the work that you uh, do in terms of engagement on both LinkedIn and Facebook. So uh, I do encourage anyone who 
is on Instagram and wants to check out Anna's work to go check her out over there. Uh, what's your handle over there, Anna? It's at Miss Anthropologist. At Miss Anthropologist. So I guess all that remains now is for me to thank my co-host, Anna, for joining us once again. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. It was fantastic to be co-hosting with you and to be interviewing Luba Miller. Uh, absolutely it was. Uh, and I also have to say a special thanks to Anna for organizing our guest this episode because uh, Luba Miller, I think... I. No, everyone will agree, was absolutely fantastic. So thank you very much, Anna, for, for going out and doing that. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast, please do share it with your friends' contacts. Go back and listen to the old episodes. We've got some fantastic content back there. We're trying to boost the awareness of this podcast so that all kinds of people can enjoy the content that we're creating here at the Center for Energy Ethics. Uh, every little bit helps. So thank you for listening. And until next time, I've been your host, James, and we hope you hear from us soon.